Besides just being a nice place to hang out, besides just bringing peace and a sense of order, this might be the instruction manual for the human mind. Are plants the blueprint for spiritual growth? Is there a clear pathway from the inmost to the raised beds in our backyards? Are the parts in the development of fruit mirroring something in our own psyche? It feels like it. I mean, maybe not those specifics, but the historical connections between gardens and spirituality, the feelings they produce, the information they seem to contain, there's got to be something more to them. During his travels, Swedenborg not only saw the importance of gardens on all levels and dimensions, but even learned some of the language, giving us the tools we need to read them for ourselves. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg in Life. Today we're going to look at gardening and gardens and how that connects to the spirit, how it's a symbol of something deeper and how you can directly follow those trails, how you can look at a specific phenomenon and say, oh, that's a mirror of thing X within the human heart and mind. How can we pull that off? You'll see in the following. My name is Curtis Childs and I'm the host. Great to have you here. If you want to be part of the conversation, get your questions, your comments in. We're going to get after those at the end of the show. So gardening is something that I've been doing a little bit of. I've been trying to plant some native plants in a certain order in my yard. And right away, you can just tell, this is, this is just pregnant. This is a pregnant metaphor. There's so much stuff that, to me, mirrors spiritual growth. And we want to try to give you guys some tools this week that will arm you so that if you ever find yourself, you know, goodness forbid, in a situation where you're gardening, you'll be able to start to pick up on these cues as well. And it's not even just gardens, it's just it's plant life, it's the way soil is, it's the way everything's arranged. We're trying to give you a way to read things so it's not just the beauty, but it's also information that's useful and purposeful and can make life better. For everyone, that's the point. We're going to begin now with part one. Why are we doing this show? Did we run out of other topics? No. I mean, we have at least four left after this. Um, But why talk about gardens? Well, in the first place, for some people, you may be wondering that, but for a lot of you, I would imagine it's no stretch at all. You've had experience there. You know that there's some kind of connection uh, between gardening and something higher something disciplined, something meditative. And we actually talked to, we have a guest on the show who is an author of a book that perfectly cross-sections what we're trying to do in our show. It's called Gardens of Heaven and Earth. Dr. Kristen King wrote it, and it's talking about spirituality in gardens throughout history and Swedenborg's uh, message around gardens and what they mean all together. So we really wanted to talk to her, and we did, and she had a good insight on why so many people are acquainted, or what, what the spiritual side of the experience of gardening is. So here are a few of her thoughts on that. I think people are rediscovering gardening um, as something that anyone can do. You know, you can do it in a quart pot on your windowsill, or you can plow up your whole backyard and do it. Um, And I think it's um, the spiritual aspects of gardening really is the ability to, or opportunity to reflect, um, to commune with nature, to feel humble. Um, if you're a gardener, 
you just constantly witness the miracle of putting these little ridiculous seeds in dirt and they just grow and they turn into life and then they produce fruit and they just keep performing. Um, so I think it's just an amazing um, spiritual encounter. Or in my case, they don't grow. Just kidding. I've done okay. But nobody's going to deny what she's talking about. You get this close-up picture not only of nature, but of the processes in nature, and there's this aura or this uh, atmosphere that goes with that, and its accessibility, that, that so many people in so many different ways can be doing this. And it's not just people these days that are getting into gardening and what it means. Throughout history, there has been this connection of this kind of sacred space that we can get through arranging things. So here's a few of those, uh, those threads as they weave through history. Gardening in the past, uh, certainly before the 19th century and especially in the ancient world, a garden was a separate space, often an enclosed space, something that was not wilderness. Now today, we love wilderness, and we might have um, landscape or a forest garden, which is sort of mediates between wilderness and a cultivated garden. But in the ancient world, wilderness was a really scary thing. You go out in wilderness and you probably die, you know. It's from that that there's this whole guest-host relationship. It's very important to take travelers in because otherwise, you know, you're in danger. And so wilderness is a threatening thing, and gardens are uh, in distinction of that. So you wall off a space, you cultivate it. It's very artificial, um, and it often, because the earliest gardens are in the desert, earliest gardens often have water at the center and they have a walled space. Um, the ancient Persian word for garden um, was paradise, which means walled in. And you, as you know, um, throughout history, we have referred to heaven as paradise. And so there's a sense of that garden as being a heavenly space, apart from the world, um, a place to relax, uh, to be rejuvenated. And one person that often refers to heaven as a paradise is none other than Emanuel Swedenborg, and he talks about gardens in heaven. Gardens come up a lot in his spiritual experiences. So why? How did they get such a front row seat at the unfoldings of, of the spiritual theater of... What, am I, what metaphor am I doing? Anyway, let's take a look at the spiritual origin of gardens, according to Swedenborg. This is from his book, Divine Wisdom 12, and we've got a little diagram that goes up for you. All right, so initially... We have our sun there, which this is a symbol of what, what is called the divine proceeding. This is from the Lord and that it appears to angels in the spiritual world actually as a sun. So this is like the first emanation, the first thing that you get out of God. So from this, God's divine proceeds through spiritual atmospheres, which were made, Swedenborg says these were made to provide light and heat to angels, and God adapted the, to the life of both their minds and their bodies. Uh, and Swedenborg makes this interesting claim that God has these two primary elements, love and wisdom, goodness and truth, whatever you want to call them. They manifest in the spiritual world as light and heat. And he says that all angels receive intelligence from this divine light, but that also allows them to see and by correspondence to breathe. So you have those three together, the light the sight and the breath. And then on the other side, they receive love from the heat 
It also allows them to feel, and by correspondence gives them a heartbeat. So touch and the heartbeat are there linked, and this is all coming out of God. And Swedenborg says that these atmospheres have different densities, just like layers in our atmosphere, and they were each adapted to the angels in heaven. They're what he calls discrete degrees, meaning it's not one fades into another, but there's a very clean cut between the atmospheres, and you go to the atmosphere that's most conducive to your your light and your heat, and where you feel the most alive and can breathe and feel the most deeply. But underlying these atmospheres, you know, the what springs out of them in each heaven are the lands where angels live. And there he describes all the things you might find in this world, uh, palaces, houses, paradisal gardens, cultivated grounds, rose gardens, lawns, and these were especially potent symbols for him in his day. They may have the forest gardens uh, Dr. King was talking about. Um, now, who knows what they've got, but these, he says, exist anew every morning. So everything in them is brought to life by the Lord, and that's a feature of the spiritual world, that things there are not static like they are here, because they have this spiritual origin, so they are they are constantly created uh, in response to the angel's mind. They come from the spiritual origin, which is life from the Lord. Here we have gardens as well, and they're different from these spiritual gardens because they have two origins, and Swedenborg describes them again in Divine Wisdom 12. Now, if you are familiar a bit with Swedenborg, you may be saying, I know of divine love and wisdom, but I don't know what you're talking about with divine wisdom. Did you, is that a typo? Did you forget that word? No, this time this, we actually meant to do that. Uh, this, is a, this is an unpublished manuscript, and I went right to the source to figure out where it fits in the whole Swedenborg epoch. Divine Wisdom is a draft manuscript that Swedenborg wrote in early 1763. Shortly before that, he had written a draft manuscript called Divine Love. And together, those two drafts turned into what became a published work, Divine Love and Wisdom. Some of the material in those separate drafts, Divine Wisdom and Divine Love, did not make the cut and did not show up in Divine Love and Wisdom. So there is material from those drafts that exists only in those drafts. So people do refer to those drafts sometimes separately. We are those people. We are doing that right now. Just like it said in the movies, we are referring to this thing separately. It goes, in correspondence with these heavenly gardens, So he's talking about gardens in the spiritual world. All things that appear in the natural world have been created. And for this reason, like things exist there, meaning here, with this difference that these, like the others, are from a spiritual origin, but at the same time from a natural origin. This natural origin is added that they may be at the same time material and therefore fixed. And this to the end that the human race may be procreated which can be done only in ultimates, where there is fullness, and further, that from the human race is a seminary, the inhabitants of the spiritual world, who are angels, may exist. So we just threw a couple of huge things at us. Essentially, we have things here in this world that are static and more stable. The spiritual world, like I was saying in the previous number, things can move and change in response to the inner nature. Swedenborg says, created anew every morning. Here, you go outside, it's, you have the same landscaping you had the night before, in case, unless someone drove over your lawn or something like that. But that there is because there's this element that makes things here stable and, and rigid. And that's necessary because you need to have an environment like that to procreate the human race. Swedenborg says, souls are born here. 
and we move on. That's why there is this here in the first place anyway. So in case you wanted to have that as, as a bonus point, why, why we're living life here. So do, there's a progression, though. There's a lot of points. Let me, let me lay it out for you here in a, a lower third. There's the divine proceeding. There's this, this is showing you how gardens are an image of our minds. There's the divine proceeding, the thing that comes out of God, moves through these spiritual atmospheres, moves into angels, and that enlightens their minds. This creates the love and wisdom that they have. And from that, these angelic gardens spring out as a representation, as a manifestation of these inner qualities. And because of correspondence, because the physical world is a metaphysical echo, or, you know, it's a reproduction through correspondence of what's in the spiritual world, we also have gardens here, except you can see there's this little bubble because there's also physical material involved, which is why angelic gardens, the way that they are, the state of the plants in there, is based on the mindset, this is very hard, of the angels that are here. But physically, if, if if you go out and you know, a tree that you like has died, it doesn't mean there's something in you that's dying or something like that. It means that that, that ash borer beetle got there and, and messed it up. And that That's the difference. However, so in, in specific, we can't say, oh, uh, we know exactly what's going on in your mind because of how your garden is. There could be some parallels, but we can, because of the processes, because of the universal things that are on display there, get insight to the universal human condition from what happens in a garden. And we're going to do that right now. I mean, that's that's what this episode is. And the first example we want to look at is that soil, we'll start with a simple one, an easy one. Our mind is like soil. This is True Christianity 350. By the way, you can click these books, download them, uh, read them for yourselves, uh, check check the numbers on either side, see more of the context. The, it, they're free, <laughs> ebook, PDF. The human mind is like soil in which both spiritual and earthly truths can be planted like seeds and can multiply without ends. We derive this attribute from the infinity of God. He is constantly present in us with His light and warmth and His generative ability. So it's a very, very simple comparison. However, it's not just like, okay, that's the only similarity between soil and the mind. You can go go within and find a new application for this same metaphor. If you just took the, you know, in the beginning it said uh, light and heat all go into these angels, there's two great things that come out of God, right? Goodness and truth, love and wisdom, whatever you want to call them. In us, there are these two elements to who we are, our rational faculty and our will or our feelings, you know, thoughts and feelings, essentially. And if we're just zooming in on the rational faculty, our ability to be rational, it if we look at it like a garden, in that garden, the memory would be playing the role of soil. And Swedenborg describes this a little further in Heaven and Hell 464. Our rational faculty is like a garden or flower bed like newly tilled land. Our memory is the soil, information and experiential learning are the seeds, while heaven's light and warmth make them productive. There is no germination without these latter. So there is no germination in us unless heaven's light, which is divine truth, and heaven's warmth, which is divine love, are let in. They are the only source of rationality. It's the growth of good things, the growth of ideas, the growth of feelings, things that that move us upward spiritually, that make us into more productive, effective, loving people. This is the garden starting to grow in us. And there are infinite 
correspondences in there. There are infinite metaphors and comparisons that you can make, and that Swedenborg is saying this isn't just you're forcing an analogy, this is actually written into the nature of these gardens. So, you know, we could go on and on, and we're going to a little bit. We're going to do it through a couple of short clips, and we're going to do it this way because we want to inspire you to send your own short clips to us. And what I mean is, think about... uh, does this stuff work, the stuff we're telling you? Is this material useful? Have you ever gotten something useful out of anything we've done? Has a, a concept from our show or Swedenborg helped you in a situation? Do you have an extra insight? Did you find a concept that you like? S- take a video of yourself, minute or less, that would be nice. Upload it to YouTube, email the link to offtheleftdie at gmail.com, and we want to start incorporating you into our show, because we want to show that this is stuff that's A, working for people, B, working for a large group of people, and C, we want to hear other voices, and, and we want to know what's potent, what's powerful. So really, like if you if you have something to share, email us there. If you're not quite sure what we're asking for, email us there. We'll get back to you. Okay, so in that style, we've had, for this episode, members of our writing staff record little insights they had about gardening and put them in. So here's our first one. This is just a way we're going to give you a few bonus insights that aren't woven into the larger narrative. Here's a little something about weeding and how that relates to the human mind. I love gardens, but I don't enjoy gardening as a pastime. So weeks will go by and I don't do any weeding. And then I'm looking at this whole big garden area and feeling overwhelmed. There's all these weeds and I just avoid the whole project. But when I decide, instead of thinking about the entire garden and the whole weeding project, I just decide to weed one little corner and maybe do a little bit each day for a while. Then not only do I find that significant progress happens, but also uh, my satisfaction and enjoyment and inspiration for doing the weeding work actually increases. Uh, much like inner spiritual work, when instead I of thinking about the entire project of all my faults <laughs> that need weeding out, uh, I just make a little effort each day. And today when I was out weeding, I got this added bonus message when a sweet hummingbird came in and started participating flowers, these white flowers, and I realized that even through a very imperfect garden, the Lord brings nourishment and blessings. So we figured out how to run our machine. I mean, we knew we knew a way to look at these a couple of specific correspondences: weeding, uh, the mind being like soil. We're going to take that and now apply it to the essential process of gardening which is the growth of plants. I mean, a garden is just moving plants around. So how? So they've got to play this central role in the meaning of it all. And Swedenborg says that the life cycle of plants is in itself a microcosm that shows us all these secrets about human development and, and this, the development of the soul and the spirit and the acceptance of this love and wisdom from God. And specifically, the life cycle of plants shows us something about the dynamic interplay between love and wisdom, these two things that hit the angels, that hit us us too, love and truth, they show how that stuff moves through our own minds. And we're going to set the whole thing up, though, with a number from Swedenborg's Spiritual Experiences. This is 1531. 
If there is to be perfect order, heavenly truths and spiritual ones must take root in truths of nature. But it should be noted that the higher knowledge and mental imagery of the angels is, are incalculably more profound than the mental imagery of people still in the physical world, yet are nevertheless rooted in truths of nature. So truths follow one after another and correspond. We want to show that number for two reasons. One is you already got yourself gardening language in that number. He's saying higher truths are rooted in lower ones. And this is, this is just like you can't hold back the gardening metaphors when you're talking about the progression of life. Uh, and then also we want to show it to say, hey, man, we, we don't totally know. I mean, there are these angelic concepts behind all this correspondence stuff that we're talking about. Human words can't quite grasp them. We don't understand them. But, but I think we all, when we discuss these subjects, get a sort of a sense of them. That's why we find it interesting. That's why we find it moving uh, and all that. So uh, we don't know, but we're, we're doing our best. That's what we're setting up. All right, so moving on. Uh, let's take a look now at the life cycle. We'll begin with the cycle of plants. So you're probably familiar with it. Um, you go from seeds to flowers and plant and leaves. Got to get some pollination in there. Then you get your fruit and your reproduction, and then you get brand new seeds. Eventually, things move into compost. There's this cycle that keeps going and keeps going. And each step of that is important and means something. So let's start at the beginning. Seeds. Swedenborg says, seeds mean love and also everyone who has love. So the thing in abstract and then the thing as it is in somebody. So why is a seed love? Is it just an arbitrary label? Well, the love that Swedenborg describes is essentially an effort to do something. There's a desire to accomplish something. A positive love is to accomplish something that helps. Uh, a harmful love is to accomplish something that's that's only gratifying to the self and ends up harming other people. So you have this these seeds, uh, and they are a symbol of this desire, because you know if you put those in the soil, they're going to go do something. Seeds are this will to go create a plant, reproduce, and produce new seeds. So that's an image of the, some kind of love in us of wanting to get something good done. That's the initial phase. Then after that, you have the leaves and the flowers stage. And Swedenborg says that the leaves mean rational truths, and flowers and leaves mean truth that serves love. So they're both truth-related. The way that Swedenborg describes truth, truth is the form of good. So good is the underlying essence, or love is the underlying essence, and wisdom is the form, which wisdom and truth are equated in Swedenborg's cosmology. And because you have this desire and this seed, you need means, you need the knowledge of how to get to this, this reproduction, and the plant is the answer to that. You, you know that to get these new seeds, and get them out there, make fruit, you've got to first send up the ability, some, something that can photosynthesize, and leaves are the best way to do that. You need to be able to attract pollinators, and flowers are able to do that. So this is the form of the knowledge of how to get there. That's what this, um, that's what these uh, leaves and flowers in this, this second phase represents in us. So first we have the desire to do something, we acquire the, the knowledge or the means to go and do it. And if you, you may remember we did a show called Spiritual Fermentation. That was essentially describing the same thing. Not that this is the exact same thing, but we were looking there at this process of how it goes from love to truth, 
back to love again. Watch that show for how that plays out in the chemical process of fermentation. But here also, you begin with this love in the seeds, then you go to this truth in the plant, and then you're headed back towards love in the new seeds. Swedenborg describes this in Secrets of Heaven 7690. He says, when we are being reborn or planted, we start with love and goodness, and we end with them too. In between come faith and truth, which spring from a loving goodness as their seed and are always looking to a loving goodness as their final goal. That's, that's the, the end. The plant is the intermediary. It's the means to getting there. And so that's, it's an essential step, and it's really cool. It looks beautiful, and we're often gardening for the flowers, but it's all to get us somewhere, to get us to these new seeds. So the next step is this fertilization. This is where the flower comes in to use, um, and we're looking at fertilization for what it tells us. Um, so we, we met, we have a, a new guest coming up, um, and we are going to check out what he had to say. So the fertilization process itself is a picture of the dynamic between love and wisdom in our spiritual growth. Um, so we can see that in the way fertilization is, and to do that, we have to go a little deeper into this step. All right, so we have to look at the... Because the more you see the actual little tidbits within the step, the more you appreciate that it is a representation on that. So we just happen to find somebody who not only is... Like, we're we're really hitting our cross-sections here for guests. This person is not only uh, a retired Swedenborgian pastor, so a lifetime of studying Swedenborg, but now is a successful photographer and author of books on plants and a painter throw it in there. So this is the Reverend Frank Rose, and he is going to tell us a little bit about how this fertilization process works, and from there we're going to be able to look at how it has this spiritual component. So first, we got to get our sort of natural knowledge hat on and just learn a little bit about how does fertilization happen in plants. Since my retirement back in 2003, I've been involved in learning about plants, photographing plants, publishing books about flowers and trees. Now I'm working on a new project, which is invisible plants, flowers that have are so small that you can hardly see them. And I've been fascinated to learn about how, how does the actual process of flowers reproducing take place? Well, a, a flower typically is arranged like this, where you have at the center, there's the female part. It has a little sort of stem, and at the top of the stem, there's a thing called the stigma. And, you know, in our language, stigma is a bad word, but actually it's a wonderful thing because the stigma is the landing field for the pollen. And then below that and around it are the anthers, the male parts that provide the pollen and then usually it's surrounded by petals and things like that. And notice how the female part sticks out above the rest. The idea behind that is that when the pollinator comes in, let's say it's a bee or a wasp or even a mosquito, amazingly, um, the first thing it does is deliver pollen to the stigma. And then it picks up pollen from the plant to go to the next plant. This is a way to make sure that the plant gets pollinated by something other than itself. This, this beautiful flower called a mirabilis, mirabilis means wonderful, it's a four o'clock flower, 
Notice the bit sticking out there. It sticks way out. That's the stigma. It's, it's way out there to catch the pollen first. And then you see those yellow bits. Those are the anthers. Here's a cactus flower. And I, I love this. The stigma in this one is actually green. And it's like a feather sticking out. And it's surrounded by the golden anthers with the pollen. What is so cool about that? is that we can sit here on this show as we unfailingly do and talk about this abstract good and truth, love and wisdom. And the, but to see it there, that's like an, uh, f uh, the form of it. You know, this is on the lowest and most external level. That's goodness and truth. You're, it's not like this two bits of helium or something. This is this thing that has structure and this thing that looks cool and that goes together and is very, very designed to do something. It's not just this ethereal nothingness. All right, so we've got our basis. Now let's learn a little more about the, the process itself and a couple of Swedenborgian points in there, how you can see this correspondences idea at work. A plant might be visited by a thousand different insects, all this stuff. This, this stigma has the job of deciding, is that the right pollen or not? So all day it's going, not you, not you, not you, not you, up. Oh! <laughs> but then the question is, what happens to the pollen when it lands on the stigma? The stigma, represented by a feather here, sits on top of a tube. And below the tube is the egg or the ovary. How does the pollen get from here to here? Well, the interesting thing is the pollen does not move. What happens is the pollen lands on the stigma and when the stigma likes it, it will then ooze some liquid. When the pollen gets this liquid, it then starts to grow. So it doesn't move down the tube, it grows down the tube. And so this little tiny grain multiplies maybe a thousand times as it elongates and goes down the tube. And here's where the magic takes place. The pollen, like any cell, has a nucleus, but it has two nucleus, two nuclei, okay? Why two? And I've seen this on an electron microscope and it's so miraculous because one fertilizes the yolk and the other, the white. In the case of an apple, the one nucleus creates the seeds of the apple and the other one creates the flesh. So notice the marriage taking place. First of all, on the stigma, the female part is what controls the operation. And I think about what's said by Swedenborg in Conjuju Love or Marriage Love, that the women really choose. Man chases the woman until she catches him. So here, the stigma is the one in charge of this operation. The stigma decides a marriage is going to take place. So that's the love. That's the love receiving this pollen grain and making it grow. So we have the two marriages, the marriage in the stigma, where the feminine part welcomes the masculine part and makes it grow. And then you have another marriage taking place in the ovary when it actually starts the process of new life. 
So I just think that's one of the, the, the greatest miracles in the world. And our whole existence depends on this process because without plants, no animals or people could exist. So we all depend on this marriage taking place constantly in nature. And the, the closer that you look at any particular stage, the more meaning you can find in there. We're looking at gardens as a whole and assigning them some meaning. But then here we're looking specifically at the plants and how their life cycle does something. And then there, Frank is seeing two marriages in the way that uh, Swedenborg says that everything is like a marriage, that, that angels can see a marriage in everything. And the, Frank is seeing two there. But if you look even within this, the double nuclei that he was talking about, um, there's, there's like a representation there of the will and the understanding, or these two faculties in us that I was going on and on about before. And Swedenborg describes this. He doesn't know, I don't think Swedenborg knew there were two nuclei. Was it two nucleus? No, it would be two nuclei. In, in you know, he, did, he didn't know about that, that science hadn't caught up, but he does talk about the things that those develop into representing these two parts, the will and the understanding. This is from Secrets of Heaven 9258. The fertility in plants corresponds to goodness in a human being. The seed itself corresponds to our inner levels, and the pulp surrounding the seed to our outer levels. When our inner part is formed anew or reborn, the facts and truths present in our outer part, like the fibers in a fruit, supply juice to our inner core. Afterward, when we have been reborn, they fall away and serve as soil. The same thing happens to our inner part, which corresponds to the seed. The goodness formed by this process then produces a new self just as the reproductive force in a seed produces a new tree or plant. In this way, everything starts over and then multiplies and reproduces forever. The new self consequently becomes like a garden and a horticultural paradise, and is even compared to these in the Word. So, there's not just the potential to become a plant, you know, if we're comparing ourselves to it, we can become a plant that then reproduces and produces more, and that the love and wisdom in any individual person can grow to be like a whole forest or a whole orchard. That's the, the potential for things when you start to go in this positive direction, which I think is exciting. Let's continue our journey. This is looking at that fruit stage in the plant. Swedenborg says, fruit means works of charity and forms of good. This is what we were getting toward. You had that initial seed, which was this desire to do something. You had the means. This is the actual result that comes from that. And within that result, as we all know, there are more seeds. So there's the potential to do it again and again. And this endless ability to multiply, Swedenborg says, that is a picture of God. That God is this unceasing will to do good and to have a positive impact on people. And you notice that we have their love to truth to love, so seed to plant to fruit, and the the truth part in the middle leads to this love at the end, but that love actually then goes back and changes the truth. So, the, so when we actually go and do something good, that even changes the way that we think about it. As we, If we went to do it again, we'd think about it differently. This is Secrets of Heaven 2657. Swedenborg says, in the beginning, our first rationality resembles immature fruit. 
which gradually ripens until it finally places seeds inside itself. So even the ripening process has meaning. When it reaches the stage where it starts to separate from the tree, its state is complete. Our second rationality, though, which the Lord gives us as a gift when we have been reborn, resembles the same fruit in good soil, where the fresh surra- flesh surrounding the seed rots. The seed sends roots shooting out from inside itself, and above ground a sprout, which grows into a new tree. The new tree gradually develops until at last it produces new fruit, then gardens and whole parks, all in keeping with the urge for goodness and truth that it receives. See Matthew 13, 32, John 12. So it's not just that you do this spiritual growth and you become a loving person, you become a wise person. You have a new way that you're looking at the world. Somehow you get this, what he calls a second rationality. So you, you even, all parts, uh, the tide lifts all boats. You, you get a better way to think about life, not just better motives and better feelings about the things that you're doing. Our next phase is sort of the first one again, but we're, we're talking about new seeds this time. He says the seeds in the fruit, and Swedenborg says new seeds seeds mean being created anew. This is the process, the spiritual process that Swedenborg describes as regeneration, this second will, second understanding, this higher thing that we can become, and he's saying that process is mirrored all over in nature. Everything is working towards that process, just like we are. And we wanted to end it with um, compost, or the breaking down of solids, and there's a couple of different ways that you can look at the meaning of compost, because any organic matter can become that. One is that all life experience can be used. No matter how terrible something was, no matter how confusing it was, no matter how pointless it seemed at the time, good can come out of it. In fact, divine providence is entirely doing that. Swedenborg says nothing bad is permitted unless good can come from it. So even the things in our life that seem like, how could this ever be useful? They can make this soil from which these plants spring. Swedenborg also likens this this decomposition to humility. That's part of what we, 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 you know, you can kind of see that, a picture of being broken down. We get this humility, that's what can grow these real good things. He also makes the interesting claim that compost is like um, evil that we had, that we turned against, meaning if we had a particular disposition towards something, maybe we like to tease people or something like that, but then we come to understand the harm that that does, and and because of that, abhor it and, and actually fight against it, that's like compost. The, the, what used to be evil in us is now this soil out of which our desire to prevent that evil is happening. You have ever had, people are involved in something, they realize it's bad, they want, you know, you see these things about uh, ex-gang members who then want to lead young people out of the cycles that lead into gang violence because they know, I went and I did that life, I don't like it, and because of their experience there, they can be this effective tool to dissuade people from making those choices as well. That's the compost metaphor or another part of it. And we want to drive home this idea that all experiences can be used by, by showing that all qualities of video can be used. If you are going to send in something to us like we asked you to, even if it doesn't sound great, it'll work. And to, to Unintentionally, we had an example of that this week because we... We were recording this little tidbit about gardening and didn't quite realize just how intense cicadas are. So we found a workaround. Uh, here's another little clip of a, a correspondence in the garden. Someday we're going to turn this, or at least parts of this, into a garden. What you might notice is that this ground is covered in dead leaves. Um, a lot of people remove the leaves from their yard, but... We've decided to keep the leaves here because we know that as the leaves decompose, 
they are actually going to be creating this super rich soil. It doesn't matter how overgrown and, uh, you know, sort of messy your yard is, it can, even those, you know, whatever they are, hard experiences, chaotic experiences, places where you feel like you're struggling, all of that is something that can get broken down and feed whatever plants you're going to be growing later. God can work with anything. And so any of these, whatever state your backyard is in, you can address it and add in different parts to meet the land where it is to encourage its eventual balance and health so that it can support the garden that you're wanting to grow. Yeah, did you know that Swedenborg himself was a gardener? And not only a gardener, but I guess you could call it an avid gardener. And that his cultivation of a particular piece of property actually had a large role to play in him producing the material that we're all reading through in this show. So to, we thought we'd first give you a little introduction, then walk a little more into the spiritual experiences that he had in tandem. So here's a little bit about the what led up to the, the gardening climate that Swedenborg was in, and then his garden as it was. If you come all the way up to the 18th century, which is Swedenborg's era, that's the time of Linnaeus, um, an exciting time for botany. Um, Linnaeus developed the um, double nomenclature system, and um, the whole world um, began using that. So suddenly, you were using the same name for a flower. Instead of a rose being called seven different things, and you don't even know that you're talking about the same thing, suddenly people have a common language around plants and gardens, which is exciting. Um, so Linnaeus did that, um, and Swedenborg had some uh, contact people speculate about how much with Linnaeus, but I just find it interesting that this great scientific leap that's happening in botany and the study of nature um, is uh, occurring at the same time that Swedenborg is living, doing revelation, establishing a garden. So he puts down roots literally in this world at the same time that he's traveling to other worlds. Um, and his garden, I think, is a beautiful space for thinking about um, how many different influences came together in his life. Um, it was geometric, kind of scientifically laid out, but very imaginative. Um, he had mazes, he had reflecting mirrors, um, he had orchards, he had a greenhouse. Um, he spent a lot of time meditating in his garden. He had a summer house at one end and he would uh, read and do his writing and look out on a rose garden and the rest of the garden as well. But he had spiritual experiences about rose gardens in the other world. And so I like to think of his garden as a portal that um, through his visions, he's going back and forth often through his encounter with his garden. And we're going to hear a little bit more about how this was a portal. It was all this talking about gardens. I thought I should get out in a garden and really see if this is, if all the hype is justified. And I did so with our next guest, who's actually written a book called Swedenborg's Garden, 
of theology, which is a good little intro to Swedenborg. You can get on Swedenborg.com, as you can get Dr. King's book there as well. This this next guest, you've probably met him before, Dr. Jonathan Rose, and he and I sat down in a garden so he could tell me the stories of Swedenborg's garden and what the spirits around him thought about it as he was making it. Swedenborg was a lifelong bachelor, and so there'd really been no need for him to own a home of his own. He had always rented. He'd sometimes stayed with his sister and her husband or rented with other, you know, friends and, and so on to be attached to a household and so on. Um, so it wasn't until 1743 when he was 55 years old that he first bought his own property. And it's interesting that in 1743 is when his spiritual eyes began to open, so to speak. That's the earliest date that he gives for his spiritual transformation. So it's fascinated me that at the same time as he was moving more into heaven, he was moving more into this world, becoming more a citizen of this world. And once he had it, so he had this garden, he was like putting a lot of work into it, you know, made it his own. He began to have um, his sort of his spiritual experiences and his physical experiences kind of intertwined there. And there was one story about there were some spirits who didn't want part of his garden done or something like that. What, what was that? Yeah, there's a passage from May of 1746 where Swedenborg uh, hints at this fact. And then a couple of years later, he gets back to it again in his spiritual experiences, talks about the fact that there were evil spirits who did not want him to cultivate his garden. <laughs> like, no, don't do it. Don't go to it's, Home Depot. Yeah, it's amazing. They And they were very, um, they filled his head with like horrifying images of how bad it would be if he fixed up this garden. You know, don't, you know, so they, they huh. poured it on thick of like, it, it'll be so horrible. It'll be profane and disgusting and loathsome if, if you do this. Right. Try to intimidate him out of, uh, out of going after it. But why? Why did they want to, do you know? It's not explained in there, but it is a fascinating suggestion that that cultivation was so important. You know, that's where Swedenborg wrote his theological works a lot of the time. That's where he was when he was writing. And there are even times, he, Swedenborg has spiritual experiences in which he says that uh, he's walking through his garden and angels are telling him what the different flowers mean and what right. they're good for, what their use is, and, and all that kind of thing. So there was a real uh, platform for heaven there, and I think hell did not want that platform there. It wanted it to be kept in a kind of a wild and undeveloped uh, state. It, it hated the cultivation. Well, this is fascinating to think about, um, I don't know, the heaven and hell being present enough that hell knows, oh, you're trying to cultivate this garden. We don't want you, you sort of, sort of think of them like, uh, but, but they knew, oh, you have this piece of real estate. We don't want you to put these plants in here because we know it's going to lead to, it's just like that, that level of involvement is fascinating. It's amazing. It's amazing that they would want to interfere. It also seems so like um, life to me that they attack at the very beginning. Right. You know, he had bought it in 1743. Uh, I feel the need to explain why it was the beginning, because although he'd owned it for three years at that point, he had been traveling almost that whole time. Mm. And so this was the first spring where he could really develop the garden. He'd owned the property, but then he left and went abroad for a, a number of years and came back. So this is the first opportunity to cultivate it. And so at the very beginning of when he's starting 
to turn the earth or even just think about, well, what will I do here? There's a blank slate, you know, should I have flowers? Should I have, you know, fruits and vegetables? Um, They're getting in there and just pouring it on thick. And when they, when they filled his head with these horrible images uh, connected with the garden, when Swedenborg even just thought about that, two years later, the spirits around him were deeply uh, uh, horrified and uh, they felt nauseous. You know, just the fact that these mental images had been associated with that garden. When he thinks of the garden, they're all, Ugh, and there's there, you know, and he had to kind of talk them down. Yeah. Well, that to me is like just because something feels bad doesn't mean it is bad which seems yes. so counterintuitive but there like there is a level of deception in which he his spirits which if he wasn't um awakened to the influence of spirits he would just i have a really bad feeling about this garden i really don't like it yeah. but to see that traced back to no that that was because of an initial deception it was actually something really good i'm not saying everything that doesn't feel good is good but something about that it's not like everything that bothers you really is what it claims to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <clears throat> Don't trust all the feelings or all the thoughts that you have. Yeah. Uh, because not all of them are coming from a, a good place. You know, somebody's got an agenda yeah. and they're trying to get you to stop something that, that you want to do. It was interesting to me how Swedenborg calmed the spirits down a couple of years later when he was talking to them about this. But what he told them was, hey, you know, when things change hands, even if there was some great uncleanness there or something because of the people who were there previously and maybe they did some horrendous thing. I don't know what the spirits put in his mind, yeah. but there was some idea like, oh no, there was a murder here. So we don't know, yeah. but they put something into his head about it. Swedenborg said, when the land changes ownership, that uncleanness is gone. Hmm. It's different owners. And the example he used for that was the temple at Jerusalem, which used to be an idolatrous worship, you know, way back in the day before yeah. the children of Israel were in there, it was used for idolatrous worship. And then the, um, you know, then that changed that did it for the spirits. Like they, Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, you know, that was a good example. So he used a biblical example right. to try to tell them that, Oh no, under new ownership is like, no, that, you know, and there is something in our spirit that feels like, Oh, if something bad happened in a, an apartment that I'm renting or yeah. in this car or in this house or something like that, you think, Oh, maybe I shouldn't live here. Maybe there's bad, you know, karma in here or something like that. Yeah. Well, it just seems like the whole thing is a story of how evil claims to be more powerful than it is. Mm. Like I, you know, we have control of this plot of land, you know, this bad thing lingers there. If you do this, there's going to be evil, but it's all smoke and mirrors that actually they were doing that because they knew like we're in trouble if this goes down. So <laughs> yeah, and is right. that is that replicated in all of our lives? There's all these like grand fears of if, if you make this choice, this bad thing is going to happen. You better watch out because this uh, even the bad like over exaggerating the lasting impact of the bad things in our lives like this thing right. happened remember how that happened it's just it's it's there and it's happened and it's um unassailable and it's evilness so and it's the heinous. most important thing in your life but, but really it's not it's just the same they just don't want that recultivated you know right <laughs> that's right it's it's reminiscent of those movies where people go back in time to try to stop something because they know from the future that it gets so powerful oh, right, that you right. want to stop it, you yep. know, kind of thing. So they realize, oh, this is, this, you know, I don't know where they 
how they got a heads up about it, yeah. but they wanted to stop him from cultivating that garden at the very outset. It's, it's really, really interesting. I might add that uh, at the time that they were trying to stop him, he had not published a single word of his theology yet. Oh, okay. You know, it was still just, it, it, he was three years away before, you know, he was three years from publishing his first volume hmm. of theology. Uh, was he writing? Has he already started writing? He was writing. Okay. Yeah, he was writing, you know, manuscript stuff, studying scripture and starting to get the siphon going. Yeah. But uh, Probably pretty still pretty hesitant about the whole project at mm -hmm. that time you know like yeah am i really doing this like i i am really gonna uh throw away my reputation is this real you know so yeah very vulnerable time for him to, to have that in the very stuff that he was writing then he said see whether i should keep this in here or if i ever publish this or you know yeah. i'm not sure what this is or i don't know what's going on and i don't know where there's this leading somewhere right it was very early stages so they got in there early and tried to you know yeah, and think about the worry worry on his part about the reception. He was putting mm -hmm. out something so different than probably anything he'd come across. Is anybody going to get this? Uh, is anybody mm -hmm. going to like this? What's this going to do? Is this really as good as I think it is? So that they must have sensed like, oh, this is when we could maybe still get him. Yeah, yeah, we've got a shot here. Did they get him? Did they stop him from publishing? Did anyone like his books? We'll tell you next week. <laughs> okay, so there's one final piece of gardening thought we want to give you in this section. This is an easy section for me. I just kick it from video to video to video and we'll do it again. This is another one of our short clips showing just another little bit about how you can apply this stuff directly to life. So one spring in my garden there was a plant coming up that I had planted the year before and there was another plant coming up near it that I assumed was an offshoot of it because it looked just like it. And so for a number of days or a couple weeks, I was taking care of both these plants, weeding around them. And I then finally started to notice some subtle differences in them. I think the second one started to show just slight prickliness around the leaves or stem or something. And I realized this is a weed. <laughs> this is not the same plant uh, that I had planted before and chosen. So I thought, what a good trick on the part of that weed that it fooled me into taking care of it for all this time. And so I, I yanked it out of there. And it made me think about uh, an aspect of my own mind and personality in that I can have a, a good trait that is a strength, like being good at noticing things. And then I can have another trait that I think is the same thing, but subtly goes towards the dark side, like... Um, starting to partake of criticizing someone and I can say to myself well I'm just noticing I'm just noticing because I'm <laughs> good at noticing uh, but when the time is ripe that God can open my eyes to see the difference then I have this choice to decide now wait what do I really want to keep in my garden to to have and to nurture as part of me and what would be better to just yank out now at what are gardens like in heaven we started with gardens on earth we sort of looked at the bridge between the two in swedenborg experiences and how there were a garden that was bridging the gap but what's it like on the other side how different are these gardens in the spiritual world what why do they appear as they do how much work are they to maintain and to set that up there's actually there's sort of a 
thing with gardens and rest here, that we think of gardens as a restful place, but there's an interesting wrinkle with what Swedenborg reported that actually sort of flies in the face of that. And so here's a little bit on that. Uh, in my studies, I, I found that to be one of the most interesting things is this concept of gardens as um, a heavenly space and rest from labor. And that's very, um, very much of a contrast to what Swedenborg says about gardens in heaven. Gardens in heaven are uh, a manifestation of people's engagement with their world and their community. Uh, gardens are um, an illustration or an actual manifestation of people's lives who love truth and do good. And so they are living a fruitful life and it is manifesting as a garden around them. So that's very different than this idea of garden as an artificial space where you escape from the world. So what's that look like? If you've got a garden, it's just a manifestation of a useful angelic life. What's it like? What's it like to walk around in one? Let's look at divine love and wisdom. Number three, two, one. The whole spiritual world is just like the whole physical world. The sole difference being that things there are not static and stable the way they are in a physical world because everything there is because there is nothing of nature there. Everything is spiritual. Everything is happening concretely around angels and around angelic communities. And we wanted to get out our highlighter there because it was going to dry out if we didn't use it, but also because you can kind of get the sense of things in the spiritual world being less real, more ethereal, because they change, because they're not as static as this, that it would be a sort of a dreamlike state. But Swedenborg is saying, no, these are very concrete. Everything there, even though it can change, you can still feel it. It's still multisensory, and you still can, um, it still feels more real than what we experience here. So just to keep that in mind, it's not like, in dreams, things change and they're weird, but there, even though things are changing, people, many people have had experiences, near-death experiences, that kind of thing, say, that feels real, what we have here is, is the dream. So we just wanted to clarify that. It is as though these things were being brought forth or created by them. They persist around them without fading away. You can tell that they are apparently brought forth or created by the angels because when an angel goes away or when a community relocates, these things are no longer visible. Then, too, when other angels arrive to take their place, the appearance of everything around them changes. The trees and fruits of the parks change, the blossoms and seeds of the flower beds change, the herbs and grasses of the fields change, and so do the kinds of animals and birds. So a huge impact on the local ecosystem from the movement of angels, because there everything is reflecting something deeper. Even even within the spiritual world, there's this reflection of deeper things. And so this is the, the, what's happening around a community is what's happening inside the community, if you get what I'm saying. The reason things occur and change like this is that everything occurs in response to the angels' feelings and consequence thoughts. They are responsive entities, and because the things that respond are integral aspects of that to which they respond, they are their visual images. The actual image is not visible when the focus is on the forms of anything, but it is visible when the focus is on their functions. I have been allowed to see that when angels' eyes have been opened by the Lord, so they see these things as they answer to functions the angels recognize and see themselves in their surroundings. So yeah, a flower is a little thing with petals and it's like a bowl, but it doesn't, it's not like a person. There's a lot of difference there. You can't look at a garden and say, oh, this is my mind because there's one of my thoughts, But we, because my one of my thoughts is shaped like um, a cabbage. 
But if you look at what each of the plants does, that's when you're seeing the representation of the heavenly things. So what are these things that are being represented by these plants and animals and everything? This is Apocalypse Explained, 1226, bracket 2, or I mean colon 2. In the spiritual world, lands exist in a moment, and upon them paradisal gardens. And in these trees full of fruits, also shrubs, flowers, and plants of every kind. When these are contemplated by one who is wise, they are found to be correspondences of the uses in which the angels are, to whom they are given as a reward. Use being what you're doing for the for the human race, what you're doing for the common good. This is the basis of angels' happiness, and based on what they're doing, these gardens manifest as a represent as an actual representation the the most um, faithful translation into a graspable form of these ungraspable or ethereal things like their function uh, the angels function in the spiritual world if that all makes sense one and the gardens themselves actually perform uses everything there is very very use oriented if you don't like the word use very service oriented very helpful even gardens can be doing something um they can teach gardens can actually teach angels this is heaven and hell 489 colon four looking at this looking at all this meaning these gardens in heaven brings pleasure to their minds generally and the specific changes making it constantly new remember these gardens update based on what's going on in the hearts and minds further since all this corresponds to divine qualities and since these people are drawn to their knowledge of correspondences, they are constantly being filled with new insights, and thereby having their spiritual rational faculty perfected. They enjoy these pleasures because gardens, flower beds, lawns, and trees correspond to information, insights, and the intelligence that ensues. So they can see that stuff and just learn more from it. And I think that you you guys saw Karen and Chelsea doing that in this episode, in those little videos. Uh, they were looking at stuff in nature and getting insight from it. That's not something they went and read out of Swedenborg. That It's based on that, but this is like, oh, I got a new insight just from the way things are. And I find that it's really fun sometimes to get your mind in that, uh, focused in that uh, direction, and then look at things, just what starts to come to you, what starts to come to you. Swedenborg describes angels here doing it. Would you like to, to try being an angel? Do you want to do it? We have a couple of shots of things in gardens. Look at it with everything we've loaded into the brain here. Just see, do you get any kind of insight about anything? Do you get any good feelings? And, and maybe that's a little bit of heaven seeping through. So here's just a minute of that. You don't just have to apply this to footage in a montage with music of this stuff. Go out in the real thing. Just give yourself a little time. Just start to play with it. 
what what is this what does this all mean i find it, eventually that stuff just comes pouring in it can be really fun to just say oh maybe and, and just be loose about it even if you don't oh i don't know what a flower really means what, what does it mean to you you can get this cool kind of contemplative look at the whole thing but gardens in heaven don't just do that don't just give insight they can actually commute be devices that communicate between the levels of heaven that they can actually be a conversation between higher and lower angels. And there may be, in this world, historical precedent for that use as a garden uh, of something that, that fosters communication, and we see perhaps some of this in, in ancient Greece. Greece is a dry climate, and you don't really think of it as having a lot of plants, but there are really, at least in ancient times, quite a number of plants there. And in Greece, um, it was a cradle of botany and also democracy. And I think those that's an interesting connection um, because um, democracy has some of its roots in the free speech and conversation and dialogue that happened in Greece. And so the gardens, or what became the academies, were these outdoor spaces where people would talk and have a free exchange of ideas. Um, and Swedenborg refers to this in heaven. Um, that's what's happening a lot of times in gardens where Swedenborg is visiting, is this insightful, incredible conversations going on where people are learning. And the fruit of those gardens is this free exchange of ideas. But even beyond um, the conversations that happen within, there can be a conversation level to level. You know, before we showed those atmospheres, those are the three heavens. You remember that diagram? I'm outlining it with my fingers. Uh, Swedenborg says that because of the difference in mindsets there, it's n a little harder for those levels to communicate with each other, but it can be done. And one way that that's done is actually through gardens. Secrets of Heaven 4528. Such paradisal gardens exist in the first heaven, on the very threshold of its inner depths. They are representations that filter down from a higher heaven when angels in the higher heaven discuss religious truth among themselves with real understanding. The language of the angels there is based on spiritual and heavenly images, which serve as word forms for them. Their talk consists in an unbroken series of representations, which are so beautiful and delightful that there is no way to express it. The beauty and charm of their words is what is represented as paradise gardens in the lower heaven. Swedenborg saying you can't represent it in words, as he's doing in a book, but you can represent it in flowers. It's somehow gardens can be a, a better translation of something an angel is saying than words can be, and the gardens can help foster this communication. And also, gardens can reflect specific topics. There can be a specific message in a garden. This is an experience Swedenborg had where he went and saw this, a garden that was reflecting this something about marriage. This is from his book, Married Love 316, and you see here, he's telling a story actually about a couple that he goes to meet, but in the beginning, it's very garden-centric, and we've uh, animated a little bit of that here for you. Once, when I was out for a walk, in a relaxed and happy frame of mind, I saw a grove of trees in the distance, with a colonnade in the middle leading to a small palace. I also saw some young women and young men, and some husbands and wives going in. I went there in spirit as well, and asked a guard standing at the entrance whether I could go in too. He looked at me closely, and I said, Why are you looking at me like that? He answered, 
I am looking closely at you to see whether that relaxed and happy look on your face includes some of the delight of a love of marriage. There is a small garden behind this gateway with a house in the middle where there are two newlyweds. Their friends are coming today to wish them happiness. I have not met the ones I am to let in, but I have been told that I will recognize them by their faces. If I see the delight of the love of marriage in their faces, I will let them in, but no others. Angels can all see in other people's faces what delights their hearts. And the delight of the love that he saw in my face came from my reflections on the love of marriage. This thought was shining from my eyes and traveled from there into the inner elements of my face. So he told me that I could go in. The gateway through which I entered was made of the branches of fruit trees connected to each other, forming a surrounding wall of trees on each side. I went through the gateway into the garden, which was fragrant with flowers and shrubs. These flowers and shrubs were in pairs, and I heard that this kind of garden appeared around houses where there were or had just been weddings, so that they were called wedding gardens. I then went into the house, where I saw the couple holding hands and talking to each other in the spirit of a true love of marriage. I could then see in their faces a reflection of the love of marriage and could hear its vitality in their conversation. And he goes on, you can read it yourself, he goes on to learn what they were talking about and hang out with them a little bit. But you see that the gardens popped up because of what was going on and were a reflection, so that's the way it is in the spiritual world, much thanks to Glencairn Museum for letting us film on their grounds for that particular uh, shot there. We are going to wrap up this section here with one more of our now famous uh, short bits of insight. So here's one more thought on the garden for you. Some weeds have really deep roots and you pull them and you didn't get the whole root and it's discouraging because you know it's going to grow right back up. But you think about it, um, any weed, any plant that grows up above the ground depends on making leaves to feed itself and making fruit or, and or seeds to perpetuate itself. So if I were to consistently over time pluck the part of a weed that comes up above the ground that's going to weaken the root because it's not getting fed and uh, it will lose energy and eventually die and not be a problem anymore. Well, in my life, I can have a deeply rooted negative habit and um, it can well up in me even when I know I don't want it. It can be very discouraging and make me feel hopeless. Um, but the thing is that the first important thing is to not beat myself up about that because that's just the human condition. We all have deeply rooted negative habits. So the question is, what can I do about it? Well, I can uh, make efforts to not feed it in terms of my thoughts, which are symbolized by the leaves of a weed, and not feed it through my actions, which are symbolized by fruit or seeds. So when that negative urge wells up in me, I can make the effort to resist uh, justifying it or indulging it in my thoughts and I can resist acting on it and that's hard at first but if I can do that with any consistency then this negative habit is not being fed and over time it's going to get weaker and less active until finally uh, the promise is that it can be removed from my life and not plaguing anymore. So control your roots, 
That's our show. And if you want to really grow your spiritual garden, like and subscribe to this video. I mean, so subscribe to the channel, like the video. That helps scatter our seeds, <clears throat> if you will. And if you really want to make this whole thing possible, please take a moment to view our donation video. This is a nonprofit. We can only put together a show as extensive of this as this because people say, oh, I want this kind of programming. I'm going to make it happen. So here's a little more of our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, here we are, question segment. I said we'd take a few, and we are indeed going to take a few right here, so thanks for hanging in there. Let's get looking at our first question of the night. Potter from YouTube. Swedenborgianism is Christian, but how much of Swedenborg's teaching is based on the Bible and how much on Revelation? How much he be talked about to other... How can he be talked about to other Christians? Swedenborg is, I would say, Bible-obsessed. And I mean, I bet that you could go into the writings of any other Christian theologian, you would not find as much quoting of the Bible as Swedenborg does. In fact, his first, uh, his first many books and his largest series, the twelve, depending on your translation, twelve to fifteen volumes, Secrets of Heaven, is entirely talking about the first couple books of the Bible. He, you know, he has these smaller works called like the Lord Sacred Scripture, where he'll just quote pages and pages of Bible quotes. That may be surprising because of what we talk about here, but he definitely does. You saw in the end of one of our quotes today where he does Matthew, John. The the thing that's going to make your conversation with another Christian person about Swedenborg hard is that he says, just like we've been talking today about gardens and that they have a deeper meaning, it's not just, oh, there's flowers here, so there's flowers. There's something deeper. He says the words of the Bible are like a garden that there is a deeper meaning there. Just like Jesus Christ says, Jesus Christ talks in parables all the time, even often parables having to do with seed and with growing. Uh, the whole of Scripture is in this parable language, and that was actually, in the, in the beginning, Swedenborg thought his whole mission was going to be just explaining the meaning of this biblical stuff. He says that he got all of his insight through that book. Um, while But there's not like Revelation and the Bible, it was one thing, because he was getting this revelation, meditating on the Word from heaven. So there, there's your, there's one one answer. Um, how do we talk about to other Christians? It depends. If it's a Christian, a Christian who's like looking for, I, I want to feel a truth that really feels good, often Christians will say, oh, this, this is the missing piece. This is the way that the love that I know should be Christianity and the Bible are compatible now because it's intermeeting. Other people are just going to say, there's only one way I believe, and this is not it, because this has not been taught by the church, and he's Swedenborg instead of Luther, and I trust Luther for some reason. Who knows? But so if you're going to start up that conversation, you want to find the commonalities. I would familiarize yourself with his book, True Christianity, 
uh, and a couple of these shorter works I mentioned, because that really will get your sort of biblical footing. If you look at it hard enough, you start to see, in my opinion, that, that his way is really the only defensible way to read that text, because if you try to go any other way, there's too much contradiction and all that. So there's my, there's my short answer to that. Next one. Do certain types of flowers have biblical meanings? Um, yes, I mean, certain types of flowers have meanings. The things mentioned in the Bible have correspondential meanings, as we were just talking about, a very Bible-focused questions section. Uh, there's, um, there's something that's called like duodem uh, in the Bible, and it has to do... It's a particular plant that grows in the field. Swedenborg says they don't know exactly what it was, but in the Bible... It was given during marriage, and Swedenborg says it's because it corresponds to married love. So there are these particular meanings of flowers. As Jonathan Rose was saying, when Swedenborg was walking through his garden, angels were telling him what flowers meant, and everything that's mentioned in the Bible has uh, has a particular meaning, and I, I don't have a list in front of me of what those references are. Whenever we go out to do a show, we think, okay, what what angle do we take on this? You could do a separate show on plants in the Bible and their mention, and we did this one on, on the, the physical phenomena. So those are just a few thoughts on that. We, we, we always have to cut way down what we want to put in an episode, and we're still way over time. Okay, next one. Mary, will this reproduction happen over and over again forever and ever? Swedenborg doesn't seem to think there's going to be an end to the world. We just did a show recently called End Times in Jesus Christ, where we talk about how there's not this God is going to destroy the earth like many people think. Now you do have the modern scientific view that eventually something's going to happen. The sun's going to run out of gas, expand, and consume the earth. Uh, Swedenborg doesn't really comment on whether or not that this planet will live forever, um, but overall he indicates that life in the physical realm will, will be forever. And that, that's just part of the, it's a permanent part of the equation. So that reproduction on whatever, it, whether we're taking them with us in our spaceships, these plants, or they're on other planets, or whatever it is, it should go on forever and ever, according to Swedenborg. Okay, let's do one more here. Bailey31909. So what about things like locusts that can ruin a good crop? Is this evil winning that round? Yeah, I mean, everything is correspondential, so everything can have a good or a bad meaning. So locusts can have a good or a bad meaning, crops can have a good or a bad meaning, but generally you would see crops as food, so this would be something on the love side, because spiritually food, it's, it's love. Locusts coming in are some kind of idea that destroy that love. So what you think about an idea in the world that has driven people away from love, which is what they should be eating spiritually, and it has left them in a state of spiritual starvation, that's a locust. That's a spiritual locust. All right, that's a good one. Let's do one more. Why not? We just do one more question. Mary, does our own personal spiritual development follow the seasons of a spring, summer, autumn, and winter? Yes, totally does. That This this is everything is a metaphor for everything, and we very much do have these processes where it seems like everything is dying, um, things are being cleared out, then we have this new life, and then it starts to fall. He says human beings go through that, churches or, or spiritual mindsets on the larger scale go through that, everything goes through those cycles. Even in the next life, there is a similar sort of cycle. People are more in love and truth than they're in less. It's just like the day or night cycle. So if you are feeling like, I mean, I, I certainly know that I I feel like, and I'm just making this connection here now, but 
I'll often feel like I was farther along three months ago spiritually. Like I was getting more positive insight. I was able to be a nicer person. I was able to push away negative things. It was working better, and now it's not working. Am I am I losing it? It's just the season. Everything's frozen. It's gonna thaw, and then and then if you've gardened, you know that last year's progress does matter. When you have um, when you have this is encouraging to me too. When you have <laughs> uh, plants, you plant a perennial. The first year, it'll grow. The next year, it'll grow bigger. And the third year, it's going to take over your whole yard. You know, they they're st- they are storing up energy year to year, getting bigger every year. So the stuff in us that dies down, um, it's going to come back and it's going to come back stronger. The good stuff is going to come back stronger. That's the promise. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out. It was a lot of fun. Uh, glad to walk through this physical metaphor. And next week, we'll be looking at the spiritual side of things. We're going to look at what it's like for us right after we die and the angels that care for us. What is the after-death care package like? What can we expect and how are angels involved? That's next week. Hope you'll join us then. Thank you so much for coming. Music.